Okay, we're in 2 Timothy. Those walking in, let's head over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, there's a passage, and we want to get into some practical areas and talk about you and your Bible. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, it says this. This is a command by God. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a command that we're supposed to be studying the word of God. And in this idea of rightly dividing, it is that idea of cutting it straight. We mentioned that Paul, being a tent maker by trade, had the idea of cutting, cutting the line of fabric one together. You've got to cut it straight. It's the same thing as plowing straight. And so you have these ideas in the Word of God that we're supposed to study the Word of God, we're supposed to be focusing on, but when we study, we're supposed to be interpreting it accurately. He goes down in chapter 3, continues with a number of different ideas, especially about the false teachers. That's a lot of chapter, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, and how it's false teachers are going to really create a problem. And then he makes this comment in verse 14. Timothy, continue thou in the things that you have learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. From a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and gives the explanation how you get this wisdom, why you get it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly or completely furnished unto all good works, or enabled, um, tooled, uh, giving you the ability to do all kinds of good works. Here's where we were last week. We were saying in a quick fashion last week, there's many benefits to doing your Bible reading, doing your Bible study. We mentioned a whole bunch of them, how it helps you to become more mature, more productive. We talked about how somebody who, uh, like a lot of us, you get born again and you say, well, is it, did it really work that way? Assurance of salvation. Even as you battle with your old flesh, your old sin nature. The uh, confidence in your prayer life, it just builds as you study in your Bible, you read your Bible. It helps as you see the stories and the passages. Purifying yourself, it's just like a water stream flowing through your life and giving you cleaner thoughts, cleaner words, cleaner deeds. We talked about the idea of the joy that the Lord gives by you studying His Word. He even made that comment, he says, I've spoken these words to you that my, my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. And he talks about that inner peace. Peace I give you. This is given, that this is stated the night that he's going to leave and the disciples are torn apart. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. The idea of torn in two. Um, Bible reading will give you direction into God's will, God's way for your life. And so he talks about your, his, his word being a light unto the path and guiding him in his steps. It'll instruct you in all truth. You'll be able to discern as you study the Bible what is right, what is wrong, which is a battle for all of us. It'll help you to make better decisions in life. And part of that is because the Bible talks about so many areas of our life. It gives instruction, it gives wisdom. It's a life manual, not just in the spiritual realm, which in a few minutes I'm going to show you that that's an argument by different groups, that the Bible is valid only in the spiritual realm and topics. But the Bible, as we take it in a literal sense, it talks a lot about money. It talks about how to run a church. It talks about our family, how to do it. It talks talks about how to respond at work, trials, talks about a dress, uh, dress code, if you would, talks about what we should do with the entertainment, our possessions. It gives us a lot of areas of our life that we should be focusing on. So there's a lot of benefits. However, 
Let's be frank about it. Let's be honest. There are some dangers that come when you say, okay, I'm going to engage in Bible study. Here are some innate dangers that go along with Bible study. We know that one of the common dangers in the New Testament was false teachers. People coming along and they were twisting the truth. They were giving a different slant to the Word of God. Uh, In fact, he even talks about those who come in and who deny Christ came in the flesh don't even what? Entertain them in your home. Bid them, neither bid them, God speed or God bless you. And he talks about how it's become, it became such a, a, a strong problem in the early days of the New Testament that every one of the churches that Paul had started and every one that he writes to, with the exception of Philippians, every one of them he is dealing with false teachers in the church who are giving erroneous ideas, erroneous interpretations, and they're twisting the truth. Do we have that same problem today? Are there people representing the Bible and twisting the Bible and not letting it speak for itself? The answer is absolutely. Okay, that's a danger. Okay, there's another danger for those of us who uh, say, okay, we're going to get in our Bible, we're going to read it, we're going to be in it on a daily basis, or we're going to be preaching it on a weekly basis. We can become too familiar with the Bible to the point that we get so familiar that we don't even bother reading it. We glance over it. We gloss over it. We don't study it in depth. Have you ever had this experience? You take a Bible story or a Bible passage that you've studied, you've read before, you re-study it, you reread it, and your mind is thinking, what more can I get out of it? And you find a whole new, not... not um, twisting the truth, but you find something that you've never noticed before that has been impacting with what you need right at that moment. The Bible is so powerful, so potent. And it's not that we're coming up with new truth. It's that as we get into it more and more, we explore more of the truth that's there. It becomes more relevant and more, more pointed to us as we go through it. So we have to be careful that we don't say, I know it already. We can become too reliant upon others to do our chewing, our eating for us. Um, we see that in the we see that in the animal kingdom, the baby birds. Who does all the chewing? Who does all the digesting? It's the mama bird. Okay, is there a point that it's good for us to have pablum, that formula, in our Christian life? Yeah, we need to start there. But he's writing and he's saying to those in in. Peter's writing to those when he's writing to them in Rome, and he's saying the problem is some of you haven't gotten beyond the milk of the word. You're, you're not getting to the meat of the word. And he's saying, listen, you, you need to grow, and you need to be doing studying for yourself. You need to be doing it on your own. There's a, there's a, a place for us preachers to help you in your study, but we're not supposed to be your replacement for Bible reading and Bible study for yourself. You need to be doing it and not totally relying upon what we present on a Sunday morning, and that's it for the week. That's not healthy. That's like eating pre-digested food, and that's all you take in. And you would say, that's gross. That's the way it is spiritually. You've got to be taking in the Word of God yourself. Now, is there benefit to having, you know, having somebody explain the Word or having other helpful books that you enjoy reading that help explain history and context? Oh, absolutely. There's, that, that, that's fabulous. That's good. That helps you out abundantly. But you need to be taking in the Word yourself and studying. Imposing too much on any given text. 
I was reading in devotions this morning, and uh, I was reading a text, a passage, uh, rereading what we're going to be speaking on this morning, just letting it go through in my mind and heart one more time. And as I was going through, it, there's a phrase that comes up, and it struck me, and it reminded me of what happened when I was in Bible college. It's a story, and it's talking about how Eli is very old. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has just been captured by the Philistines, and the news comes back that the Jews have lost the battle, and that the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And it says Eli was very old. He's not 98 years old, it gives his age, and then it says, and his eyes were, anybody remember this? His eyes were very dim. He couldn't see. And it gives us that little tidbit, then it goes on and says that when he hears the news that the Ark of the Covenant is taken, his sons are dead, he falls backwards in the chair and dies, basically of a heart attack, a broken neck, one of the two, I'm not exactly sure, of which came first. And so he, uh, there's that point. And he makes a statement in there, it says his eyes were dimmed. Okay. It's a fact. He's just giving, he's giving, you know, details of what's going on. But I remember sitting in Bible college and hearing a preacher preach. He says, whenever you have any kind of those little added, that means there's some spiritual truth that has to be going on. Well, if you approach the Bible that way, that every little phrase has some implied spiritual truth, where do you stop? Right? I mean, the passage says his eyes were dimmed. So what's that mean? He couldn't see. Oh, that must mean that he's spiritually blind. Well, we know that he had spiritual problems, but if I'm going to read every little text, in fact, this preacher went on to say, you have to look at all the underlying truth to every phrase of the Bible. And he illustrated it by the story, and I don't remember which prophet, Elijah or Elisha, one of the two. And it talks about how they came into the house and they sat at a table. And so it's just giving detail how they came in the house, they sat at the table, and they were going to minister to somebody. And I'm not sure which, which account it is, the woman with the oil that they're going to increase, the woman whose child had died. I don't remember which text. But I remember this. I remember he said he came in, he sat down. Now that pictures this spiritual truth, that we need to come in for fellowship with other believers. And we need to sit down at the table of God's Word and let God's Word just refresh us when we sit at His table because that table represents communion. Now, how did he get communion out of that text in the Old Testament when we didn't even have communion yet as we know it? If you do that type of Bible study, you can make the Bible say anything Okay, now what he was saying when he says we need to have fellowship with other believers, is that a truism? It is, that we need to have fellowship with the Lord. Is that a truism? He wasn't preaching heresy, but he wasn't preaching that text and what that text was about. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't run rampant with the Bible just because we have some type of um, agenda. We have some type of preference. We have to show ourselves knowledgeable. Uh, we have to be careful. Here's another. Here, to me, this is the big thing. Is a poor, poor hermeneutic. Now, some of you are saying, I have no idea what that word means. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the word is a theological term. It's a term that comes that if you were to pick up a book on how to study your Bible, you're going to run into this word. If you go to a, you Google an article on studying your Bible, you're going to run into this word. Okay, it's a simple word that comes, that has this kind of an explanation. The word literally means to explain to or interpret. It could be used for interpreting somebody's language to another language. 
in, in, the, uh, in Bible days. It was, a, it was a common term that they would use, hermeneo, was the word that they would use in the, in the New Testament tongue. And so we developed over years, theologians, Bible students, they developed this idea of how do we explain or interpret the Bible. And so it developed into the science of following the Bible, a method of trying to interpret the Bible. It's called a hermeneutic. And every one of you has a hermeneutic. Every one of you, without realizing it, when you approach the Bible, you're approaching it with a certain uh, mindset. You're approaching the Bible with a certain value system that you would put on it. And so it's the idea of coming and reading. For, for some people, the hermeneutic would be this. I cannot understand my Bible. I need somebody else to explain it to me who is clergy. Now, do some churches teach that hermeneutic? Yes, they do. They teach that you can't understand your Bible and it has to be interpreted by somebody. That's a hermeneutic. I think it's a totally, and I hope you do too, it's a totally errant and false hermeneutic. It's an unbiblical one. But there are some who have that hermeneutic. There are some who have the hermeneutic that says this. The Bible is only one tidbit of what God inspires. What God does is God adds other books to it that help explain the Bible. Those books could be um, we heard about it from the Islam faith. The Quran is an ex, a reinterpretation, re-explanation of what was in the Bible, okay, and added to it. That's their hermeneutic. There could be other groups that say, well, we have um, other books that are explaining it and interpreting it that are more authoritative, whether it be some groups like the Book of Mormon, or some say it could be the clergy, or you know, some one individual, and that's a hermeneutic. I, again, you and I might say it's a wrong hermeneutic, but they have one. Okay, here's what we typically have in seminaries, churches. There are some common hermeneutics that show up in churches. I'm going to talk more of the uh, quote-unquote Protestant-minded churches. The hermeneutics go this way. Okay, there is a liberal hermeneutic. The liberal hermeneutic is going to say, what about the Bible? Somebody from a liberal slant, will they believe the Bible is inspired by God? Typically not. What else might they deny? It's not absolute truth. And in fact, they might deny, let's, let's pick up on that, they might deny all forms of absolutism, that nothing is absolute, everything is determined by who? The individual. You determine what's right and wrong. That's, that's part of that liberal hermeneutic. Um, what might they say about miracles? Yeah, they're allegoric at most. They don't happen. There isn't any miracles. So just the, you know, I'm not, and I, we, we don't want to jump the gun and go too far. That's not, all liberals do not deny the existence of God. They may say there is a God, but they might say that the God is distant. He's uninvolved, okay? And so that idea that the Bible can contain errors, that's a hermeneutic. That's an approach to the Bible. The Bible's, pers- uh, Bible's purpose from typically from a liberal point of view, is it to teach moral lessons. Um, I've illustrated this before. When I was in catechism classes, I was taught by a liberal priest, and the liberal priest said, here is my hermeneutic, the stories of Adam and Eve. He didn't say these, these terms, hermeneutic. He says, this is the way you, you must understand the Bible. Adam and Eve, Jonah and the whale, uh, Cain and Abel, they are not true stories. They are just allegorical lessons, and they are like a spiritual Aesop's fables is what he said. Okay? They are good for moral lessons. That's, that was his hermeneutic. That was his approach. Would that make an impact on how he would interpret the Bible? Oh, tremendous. 
Tremendous. Okay, The Bible can provide insight, so it's a social book, it's a historical book, it's a cultural book. But remember, it's not reliable because it could be errant in some areas of social, uh, history, culture, and people determine their own destiny and direct us for life. Therefore, you judge what's, uh, what you think is good in and out of the Bible. The basic line of liberalism is this. The authority is God or man. Man is the authority. Okay, that's liberalism in a nutshell. It's man is over God, determining because God is distant, or God has given us that, uh, that opportunity to be over him in areas of authority, absolutisms in our life. And that comes to the Bible. Here's another common hermeneutic that came out of the 50s, actually. Very, very popular. And it came, it's called neo-orthodoxy. You will see this term if you start studying. Basically, neo-orthodoxy does this. They accept that the Bible was inspired, that uh, they don't accept the idea that all the Bible was inspired, but they accept the idea that the Bible could be inspired by God. What do they mean by that? Uh, Basically, it comes like this, that um, the Word of God... How do I want to phrase this? No, the Bible becomes the Word of God when it speaks to you. If it inspires you, then it's inspired by God. If it doesn't inspire you, it's not inspired by God. Okay, now there's a huge problem with that. Okay, what portion of the Bible is inspired by God? We say all of it, but under a neo-orthodoxy, well, what's inspired for you might be different for what's inspired for you. Again, who is the authority now in determining the Word of God? Okay, we are. It's very subjective. And um, it, it says, basically, if the section of the Bible is inspiring or inspirational, then it's inspired of God. By the way, you, you need to understand this point of view. This same approach is to all kinds of literature. Shakespeare, for instance. If Shakespeare inspires you, that is a message from God to you. If the words of Gandhi inspire you, that's a message that is God speaking to you. So it's very subjective, okay? It's not denying the idea of inspiration, but you have to understand what they mean by inspiration, okay? The terminology gets adjusted. So then you have, this came out in the 50s as well, new neo or new evangelicalism is a whole movement that, that went rampaging through America, 50s, 60s in particular. What had, uh, and evangelical is the word that means that in theology we basically mean somebody who's evangelical believes simply this. You must be born again. The evangelism, the gospel, the message. So when we talk about new evangelicalism, we're not talking about people who are not believers who deny Christ or who want nothing to do with them. They're, they're typically born-again individuals. And there's, what happened is in the uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, how far do you want to go with this? Uh, let, let's touch it quickly. In the 1920s and 1930s, there was the rise of evolution in America. There, there came with the rise of evolution a real division in a lot of churches, in mainline churches, as well as uh, a lot of different churches all over. We're talking within Protestantism, within Bible church movement. And this, this whole thing became liberals or conservatives. And um, the conservatives were saying the Bible is inspired. They held to what is called the five fundamentals of the faith. 
fundamentalism came out of this, the terminology. And there was five basic fundamentals of the faith that some held to, but the liberals were saying, no, 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 the Bible isn't inspired, Jesus isn't divine, uh, we're not saved by the blood, he's not coming back physically. Um, there was a lot of those divisions within churches. And there was a lot of arguments and fights over who was going to maintain ownership of property, ownership and control of seminaries, because... It, as the seminaries go, what happens in the next generation? The churches are going to go that way. Okay, because the new generation preachers are being taught a certain hermeneutic. And so there was a, there was a lot of this going on. And um, then you had the Scopes Monkey Trials. You hear of them? Okay, it was that whole, it was a national debate that happened with the school teacher teaching evolution, and he was told that by state law he couldn't teach evolution. They went to court, and it became a national court. Basically, it was in the court system, could they teach evolution, or must they teach creation in the public school system? Uh, evolution, um, at that moment, the creation crowd won out, but it was changed in subsequent court cases, and it drew lines, big lines politically, socially, um, churches. And um, so then there, there came a movement that was just a lot, of, a lot of conservatives started just leaving mainline denominations. They started leaving, and there was the Bible church movement that became very big in, the, in America. And uh, that happened a lot in the 50s, 60s. And the, uh, the public perception of Christians, evangelicals, came to be hillbillies. Okay, it was they were personified in in articles in newspapers as bumpkins, hillbillies, uneducated individuals. Okay, and so it was a real put down in society. Well, within evangelical circles, there's a number of people who are very intelligent. They have degrees. They want to teach. They you know they they aren't they haven't they haven't taken their brain and put it in a box to believe in the Bible. Okay, They've, they're intelligent, but they couldn't get, couldn't get jobs. Okay, you, you, there, there was only a limited number of schools and seminaries that were, you know, again, we're talking the 40s and 50s in particular. There's a limited number of seminaries, and they're only hiring individuals that kind of agree with them on some of these areas. And so there's a, there's a movement that came in that there's two different movements in the conservative realm. A number of them started Bible colleges and started seminaries. Bob Jones is the one that started then and continues on to this day. There was a number of others that, that started schools. But there were some people within this movement that said, well, I want to be over here with the academically accepted crowd, and in order to become more academically accepted... Um, I'm not so sure creation is such a big thing we should be dividing on. In fact, maybe evolution has a little bit of a basis. So there was new teachings that came out called theistic evolution, day-age theory of creation. Did any of that ring a bell with you? Day-age theory says basically the world wasn't made in seven days, but each day represents a huge big era of time. And God basically did evolution. Theistically, he went, let it go so far, and when it stopped, he all of a sudden intervened and started it on another cycle of evolution. And so evolution finds some basis 
within Scripture because what we'll do with Scripture is instead of seven days, we'll take seven eons of time. And so we started finding that there was a group that said, we're born again, but let's find acceptance here. Let's find you know, where the public will listen to us more. They think we're hillbillies. Let's, let's be dialoguing with these other churches and these other groups and find common ground rather than be separated totally. And so that moved into what's called new evangelicalism, where, where it's moving into theologically, let's, let's drop certain things so that we become more accepted by the world around us. It was the basic premise of it. And uh, that happened academically. It happened in areas that all of a sudden there had to be a decision made, what, what about the Bible beyond creation? Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this way. Okay? The finding a spot where you can dialogue and be accepted in the educational elite of America was a lot of what, what trended in the leadership. And so it moved to the point that all of a sudden let's drop certain things, such as let's not be so dogmatic that the Bible is accurate in all areas like science and history and archaeology, that the Bible is a spiritual book. It's not a history book. It's not an archaeological book. It's not a science book. So let's, let's admit that there could be mistakes in the Bible in these areas. You know, and instead of arguing over, uh, did Jericho really fall? And now understand at this point, they still hadn't uncovered the remains of Jericho in the 50s. They had found what they thought was Jericho at a certain layer, and the people who went in and uncovered, they said there's no evidence of walls falling down. That's, that must be a mythological story. And so a number of the new evangelicals said, well, if they can't back it up, then yeah, it probably didn't happen. It was only in the 70s when they did even more archaeological research and went down another whole layer that they found, you know what? That, that city of Jericho was rebuilt hundreds and hundreds of years later, but the original really did collapse. I, I take that back. They found at a different mound. It was in nearby vicinity that they discovered it was, the walls did fall outside, and what they found for grain and different things, it was all burned up and not taken away. Which, if you raided a city in the Old Testament, you would take the food with you. So everything that they found in that second mound in that same area, it, it, uh, it showed, yeah, you know what, the Bible is right. But because there was questions about it, some said, well, let's not, let's, let's not say the Bible is inerrant. And so a whole movement grew out of that that said the Bible is inerrant when it comes to teachings on salvation, but beyond that, we don't have to be dogmatic. Beyond that, it may have errors. And so now it came to a point where the Bible has major doctrines and teachings and the Bible has minor stuff. And so we shouldn't argue, we shouldn't be dogmatic on anything but the major, and the major is salvation. Um, if we disagree on miracles, that's okay. That's not major as long as salvation isn't corrupted. If we disagree on, is Jesus really coming back physically at one time in the future? That's not major, because whether he comes back physically or whether he comes back spiritually, it's not a big deal as long as we're all saved by the blood of Christ. Well, if you do that, you can start changing and adjusting how much of teaching. There's a whole lot of teaching you can adjust. 
And so then, then it, you can change and say, well, it's not dogmatic uh, what, kind of, what kind of church government we have. If we have, you know, a one-man rule government, you know, whatever suits your fancy and floats your boat. Well, so this whole movement developed, and there's different levels of the new evangelical, but understand where they're coming from. They're coming from the idea that the Bible is relevant and of the Lord and very important in major, major areas that deal with you must be born again. Outside of that, the Bible could have erroneous ideas. And it doesn't talk, when it says that he fed the 5,000, that doesn't mean he necessarily did a miracle to feed the 5,000. So you can start all of a sudden pulling out all kinds of passages that if you start saying, okay, I question this, 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 then how much of the Bible can you start dissecting? Okay, and so that's, a, to me, it's an extremely dangerous point of view um, in, within, within evangelical circles. There's a covenant theology. I mentioned this last week. Covenant theologians basically be, say there's two different types of covenants through the, New Testament, uh, through the Old and New Testament, and they aren't the Old and the New. There's just two different covenants, and what they were is one was the work of uh, the covenant of grace, one was a covenant of works. And the Bible first starts out with a covenant of works, which, uh, which then was replaced by a covenant of grace. And their idea then comes and says that the covenant of grace was started within the Old Testament era under Moses' period of time, and he had a covenant of grace. It wasn't a covenant of works. And when he talks about the law being a problem, they say it was the, it was the corruption of the law, not the law itself. And so there's validity to the law still today that we come under a covenant. And just like in the covenant that you accept Christ and you come under his covenant, then like in the Old Testament, when a Jew or somebody who came into um, Judaism, a proselyte, when he believed what happened to his children, they came under the covenant. And so it's an idea that if you're in the covenant, then your kids are automatically in the covenant. There's a danger to that, right? Because you're saying the kids don't need to be born again personally, okay? And then it goes into saying, okay, a lot of what's in that Old Testament initial representation of the covenant of grace we call the law, a lot of it is still valid today. And it's very picturesque of what we should be doing today. Let me see if I can interpret it, give you an idea, okay? Um, Baptism and circumcision, okay? Circumcision in the Old Testament happened to babies, boys, when they were just at eight days old. Well, it was a picture of entering into the covenant. So today, we want kids to enter into the covenant. What do we use to help them picture their entering into a covenant? Infant baptism, okay? And so uh, that makes them part of the nation and part of the covenant. So too, if they get infant baptized today, baptized then, they're displaying their parents' faith, and same way the parents in the Old Testament, kids came under the covenant, the parents, when the kids get baptized, they express the faith of the child. And the child becomes, by infant baptism, becomes part of the covenant. Do you have, any of you have a problem with that one? That infant baptism gets somebody saved? Do you have, anybody have an issue with it? Okay. Okay, but do you see where it can come, it can come in? Because your, your idea is everything that they had in the Old Testament is picturesque, and so we bring it. And so it's not the idea that that was for one period of time and it's been obliterated. Okay? It's the idea that everything continues on 
and just some symbolism. So covenant theology basically says there's no difference in the, between Israel, the Old Testament, and the church today. Whatever was promised to Israel in the Old Testament, you and I, the church today, we benefit. We get it. We're the new Israel. Okay, and so that's a, that's a theology which really affects end times. Because in end times, then we're, the, we're Israel. Okay, um, <clears throat> you know, in fact, we could be in the end times right now because we've replaced Israel, and it, it just goes on and on and on. There's a theology system that's called dispensationalism. And I know this is boring for some of you, but this is so critical. If you don't get this, you're going to really, you're going to blow it in your Bible study. You're, really, you're going to really stumble. Dispensationalism is this. It's the most conservative, most literal approach to the Bible. It sees, for instance, a distinction between Israel and the church. What was given to Israel was given to Israel. What's given to the church is given to the church. That even in the future, church and Israel are distinct. Um, the, it has the idea that of all ages, people were saved by faith in what was revealed at that time, God providing salvation for them. And so in all ages, you had to be born again, and your understanding was that God had to provide your salvation. Okay? The idea is this, that in different eras of time, let me, let me back up. Faith without works is, okay, here's the issue. If everybody is saved by faith through all ages, do they have the same works through all ages? No, they don't. Your expression of your faith, you're saved by faith, but your expression of your faith in the Old Testament era, if you were living under law, was expressed by being involved with what system? The Jewish system of going to the temple and worshiping at the temple and eating certain foods and um, you know, having a variety of the Sabbath day was there. That was your expression of your faith. Faith without works is dead. And so they had to express their faith. Did Jesus come along and do those same expressions of faith? Did he do the Sabbath? Did he oblige the dietary codes? When he was on earth, did he do this? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He, he, did he go to the temple and worship even though there was corruption at the temple? Yes, he did. He did that. That was because that was legitimate at that time. But when he died, buried, and resurrected, he said, we're going to have a whole new set of faith expression works. And he changed the faith expression works. All of a sudden, he introduced baptism, church, communion. And what did he do with the animal sacrifices? They were already, they're done, okay? What did he do with Sabbath day? Was there still a Sabbath day? Was there still a Saturday? Let's rephrase that. Is there a Saturday today, folk? Yes, there is. Okay. Is, did he change the day of worship? Yes. Okay. So we're still saved by faith, but our expression of faith is different than it was in, under the law. Was the expression of faith different prior to the law? The law starts with which man? Moses. Was there other people living before Moses? Yes. Did they have a different expression of faith? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. There was a period of time that what animals could they eat? None. Initially, they couldn't eat any. Initially, when? In the Garden of Eden. And then what were they told to eat? All of them. 
initially, when they came, after the ark, they're told to eat how many? All of them. And then under the law is their limitations. Then there's limitations. Then you come back after the law, and the dietary codes changed again. Which one's right? They all are. For whatever time period that they were told, this is what's for this time period. That's what dispensations is. Dispensations doesn't see conflicts and contradictions. It sees very simply that there was different expressions of faith at different eras of time. What changed the expressions of faith? Clear-cut revelation given by God, telling them what to do, how to act, how to go about. Now, is there sometimes, are there expressions of faith that overlap? from one of these different periods of uh, one of these one of these eras to another era sure there is there's some expressions of faith that overlap there like marriage okay that that overlaps um, there wasn't government in the first couple they didn't need a couple a government but there was all, so over periods of time god gave different responsibilities and outworkings of your faith were expressed differently in different eras of time in the bible so when we come to the Bible, which era of time are we focusing on to find out what is our expression of faith? What, what section of the Bible? The New Testament, especially what section of the New Testament? It's not your question, but this is, boy, if you don't get this, it's going to really mess you up. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what era of time are they under? They're un- not, oh, let, let's be more specific. They're under law. The law is still, is still there, right? Jesus still did temple. Jesus still did clean foods, unclean foods, because he's under that era of time of the law. Okay, so when we come and say, well, if Jesus did it, we should do it. Yes and no. Because did some of those expressions of faith change in the book of Acts and the epistles. They did. They did. So you say, well, how do we know where there is this change? You look at and say, when did God give new revelation and say, I'm changing the expression? In the book of Ephesians, he tells it very clearly. This area that we live in now, since the apostles in Christ came, the era that is before the apostles is a major area, and then there's era of time, and then he talks about a third era of time that is going to be in the future with the kingdom. And he lays it out very clearly that there were expressions of time. Let me give you the illustration that he uses. We'll get back to it in Ephesians. In Jesus' day and time, were there issues about Jews being together with Gentiles. Yes. Was that part of the Old Testament law? It was. And then all of a sudden, in the New Testament epistles, and in the book of Acts, do they wipe that out and say, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile? Yes. And it's very clearly stated, we have changed in that area of relationship. A lot of changes. And does that take time for people to catch up with it? Yeah. Yeah, that was the problem in the New Testament, is Peter still struggled with some of that old system of expression of faith with the new system of expression of faith. And so that's dispensationalism. And it approaches the Bible that says, what makes plain sense? If it makes plain sense, seek no other sense. 
The whole idea is, okay, what does it say? Very clearly, what does it say? It's not symbolic and it's not allegorical that we can pick and choose. What does it tell us to do? Does he use symbolism? Sure he does. I am the door. That's symbolism. How do you know it's symbolism? Common sense. The plain sense. He's not walking around with a doorknob and hinges. Okay, when the plain sense make, it makes common sense, seek no other sense. So when he says, I am the way and the door, I am the sheepfold, we know he's using, then he's using symbolism. Oh, by the way, do you use symbolism? Do you, in your normal speech of expression, do you use, I'm as hungry as you know, a bear? Okay, do you use that kind of thing all the time? Yeah, so... So does the Bible, because God was talking to who? People. And he was using the way people talk to people. And using their, their, their ways of speech, and we understand that. So when we say we're literalists, we come to the Bible literally, it doesn't mean that, okay, I'm the door means he's literally a door. It means literally using human communication. How does that work? Four corners of the earth. Take that literally. Does that mean there's four corners in the earth and the earth is flat? That's not, that is an extreme literal point of view, but a literal point of view that says, I'm coming and saying, take the, the plain sense of that text. From a literal point of view, he's using allegory, symbolism. Okay? What's he mean by four corners of the earth? Everywhere. Take it to the four corners of the earth. He's using human speech methods, and we take it as a literal human speech method that says, okay, we're, we're taking it everywhere. And so it's not that hard, it's not that difficult to just say, this is the way that it talks, because this is the way we talk, that we use that type of speech. So when we come, the, uh, the dispensationalist, which by the way, if you haven't got the hint, that's where I'm at, the dispensationalist, and that's where our church is teaching, the dispensational point of view, it, we do have ground rules. We do approach the Bible with certain ground rules. Uh, in fact, let me illustrate this way. You came to church this morning. You probably drove a vehicle or rode with somebody. Were there ground rules for driving that you followed? If, if there were no ground rules, where could you have driven this morning? Left side of the road? For you, then stop could have meant slow down. Some of you, it still meant that. Okay. 35 miles an hour meant other people drive at 35 miles an hour. I'm going at 53. Okay, you just reversed it. Okay, aren't you glad there's ground rules? When you play a game, when you play sports, some of you are sports fanatics. Are there ground rules that say when we're playing soccer, you cannot take the baseball bat out there and use it, okay, and wipe out the person? Okay, there's ground rules. When you, when you operate as a family, you have ground rules, Hopefully you do. We all, there's ground rules. When you go, you're going to go off for lunch today. You're going to do a smorgasbord. What's some ground rules that should be, a, should be good to keep everybody safe? Take a clean plate. Okay, every time. You know, don't let the kids spit on the food when they're up there. You know, they, they, there's ground rules. We do it in every area of life. That's okay. That's good. Your workplace has it. We do. We, we, you know, there's ground rules when we approach the Bible. Here's the rules as a dispensationalist, here's what we, we approach the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word. 
Therefore, we believe this. It is totally God's word. It is accurate, true, reliable in all areas. That's a ground rule. That's an approach. That the Bible is, is historically, culturally, um, scientifically, it's accurate. Okay, you say, yeah, but, but you, you say that, but then you talk about you know, the earth and the corners of the earth. How can you say that? Because we understand that it's figures of speech. That, that the Bible uses allegory, similes. It uses it just like we do. And it's not a problem. Um, by the way, did the Bible talk about the four corners of the earth? Yes. Did the Bible also talk about the roundness of the earth? It does. It does. And it talks about the idea of, you know, of the earth in an orbit and spinning and rotating. And so there's scientific fact that's there that's not such a big issue that some make it. But here's the question I want to answer here for the next few minutes, because I've really gone long in those other areas just to try to keep you up with me. How do we know the Bible is inspired? If somebody came to you and said, how do you know, why do you believe the Bible is God's word? How are you going to respond to them? Here's the way I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond by, first of all, saying, I accept the Bible as God's word by faith. Okay? That's my premise. Is my premise is my faith. Okay? I start with faith. I believe in something. You believe in something. You might believe it's not inspired. I believe it is inspired. But my belief is not based on just a leap in the dark. My belief, as I illustrated last week, is when I get in my car, I believe my car is going to get me here, and I believe in the, if I push that pedal, it's going to go. Push another pedal, it's going to stop. I believe it because of experiences, because of knowledge of how, to a degree of how cars work. And so my belief in my car is based on some facts. My belief in my car is based on some experiences. You, you do that with an airplane. You, how does that big plane get off the ground? You believe it enough that you buy a ticket and get on it. And you believe and you have faith in that pilot. And you hope that it's going to happen. Now, your faith is based on something. Experience. Some, some knowledge. You've seen this happen before. So when we say we believe by faith that the Bible is inspired, it's based on some evidential facts. Here's the facts. Fact number one. A whole claim, a, a whole section. The Bible claims to be inspired. Now listen to me all the way through. Okay, there are the Old Testament writers and their books claim very clearly that God spoke through uh, to them and through them. We could talk about a number of passages that they talk about how God of Israel spoke to me and I wrote, whether it be David, whether it be Jeremiah, whether it be Amos. These individuals were writing down what they understood to be inspired by God. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Wayne, other people claim the same thing. I'm not done, not done. I want you to see something else about this idea, okay? The New Testament writers, as they wrote, they recognized that they were speaking as led by God. For instance, Paul is writing all Scripture. It's given by inspiration. He uses present tense. He doesn't use past tense. He is talking about all spiritual writings that are happening right now. They are given by inspiration. He writes that sometimes, he says, I'm speaking by permission, not by commandment. I understand that God has different levels of what he's directing me to write down. That this is counsel or this is commanded. And he's aware of that. He's fully aware of what's going on as God is speaking to them. Let me give you a third claim fact. New Testament writers clearly understood that the Old Testament were inspired by God. Hundreds of years later, they talk about the scriptures, which is the spiritual writings of the Old Testament, scriptures for seeing that God would justify, etc., etc., etc. 
And that word scripture is their way of saying that is a special writing from God. That's the term that they're using when they use scripture. He's saying, yeah, God did that in the Old Testament. He specially wrote to them. In Peter, he writes and he says, hey, the men of the Old Testament, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you have these books written hundreds and hundreds of years later advocating for the idea that God spoke to those men of the Old Testament. And they quote some of that Old Testament. They call it spiritual writings, the scriptures, that in their mind is high and holy and inerrant type of, of writings. And he talks about, in several different passages, I've just given you some samples of where they are talking and saying Old Testament clearly is what's directing and guiding us. Let me take you a step further. Jesus Christ considered everything of the Old Testament to be from God. Jesus states this. Now, if you say the Old Testament is not from God, you're, you're face-to-face with Jesus saying he's wrong. But if you believe Jesus is God himself come in the flesh, he talks about in multiple places that the Old Testament very clearly came from God Almighty. Okay? And he is saying that everything that you read in the Old is from God. Now, add this together. Those who were writing it in the Old Testament, they thought they were being led of God. Years, hundreds of years later, writers quoted them as being from God. Jesus said what they, what they wrote was from God. And so they're writing these things down. And then in the New Testament, the writers who are writing it down themselves, they are quoting one another saying, this is inspired of God. Let me illustrate. Paul writes and says... You know, that scripture says, inspired writing says, the labor is worthy of his hire. He's quoting what Luke wrote. It's a quote from Luke's writings in Luke chapter 10, and he's calling Luke's writing inspired, inspired by God, scripture. He does the same thing later on when Peter writes and he says, hey, there's, um, there's some things that are hard to be understood. And he says, Paul's writing about some things that are hard to be understood as they do with other scriptures. He's comparing Paul's writings with other inspired writings. And so he very clearly is saying, I believe. I believe that that is inspired by God. And so you have those claims of the Bible itself very clearly wrought in a consistent fashion saying this came from God. That's not my only basis. Okay? There's the accuracy of the Bible, the correctness of the Bible. The Bible, as you study it over a period of time, has been proven time and time and time and time and time and time again to be accurate historically. There was a period of time in the 1900s, in the 1800s, that they questioned the Bible. They questioned Belshazzar. They questioned Sargon. Ahas Uris, excuse the spelling, I left out a couple letters. The Hittites. They, and they said the Bible can't be accurate. Liberalism was growing. This was their, their foundation. There's a lot of historical errors. Do you know what? That since that time, every one of these have been founded, archaeological writings and documentation, that they were all there. The problem isn't with the Bible, it's men catching up with the Bible. Science and archaeology. In archaeology, there are many evidences as it's developing over the decades and centuries that support the idea that the Bible is absolutely accurate in these areas of science and archaeology. And uh, in, in the here, let me, just, let me just quote you a couple of things here. Okay? These are taken, this is, this is taken from a liberal 
from the early or in that liberal movement. He writes this, the patriarchal narrative has legendary flavor but many details of the story have now been confirmed and elucidated by outside sources. The discovery of vast numbers of clay tablets provides substantial evidence that Abraham and his family did follow all the ancient social customs. The Bible is accurate. That's from a liberal point of view who studied it. Here's two individuals. Lord Lyttelton and Gilbert West, avowed skeptics, maintained that the Bible was the biggest fraud of all. They were not content just to say that it was. They purposely set out to prove the Bible was errant. Mr. West set out to write a book on the irregularities and impossibilities of Christ's resurrection. Lord Lyttelton was going to make a laughingstock of the conversion of Saul. At the, same, at the time and place appointed, they were to meet and bring their evidences of their success in their respective searches and then plan uh, to further write about their findings and make it known to the world. Imagine their surprise when they met each other to discover that they both had been converted to personal faith and trust in God through their studies. They found out that it really did happen with Christ's resurrection, as was stated, and with Paul's conversion. Instead of finding fraud, they found the very words of life. Dr. Werner Keller was reputed to be one of the most outstanding journalists in Germany. He felt compelled to write a book about the Bible as history. His travels took him to the lands of the Middle East where he accompanied several persons who were doing archaeological studies and excavations. Keller was so amazed at the historical facts uncovered and in their agreement with the Bible that he ended up writing a book, The Bible as History. He found the Bible to be the most historical book beyond compare with correctness. The accuracy of the Bible amazed him. He found the Bible to be ahead of some of the history books in the exact same periods of times. Here's uh, William Albright. There is scarcely a single biblical historian who has not been impressed by the rapid accumulation of data supporting the substantial historicity of the patriarchal tradition. Here's another individual. Scriptures refers to cities or empires or other uh, man-made boundaries or to people and government, the histories, the archaeologists and anthropologists find them to be just as described in the Bible. The point is the Bible is accurate in all of these areas. And then you turn to this one area called prophecy. Do you realize that if you do a study of the prophecies of the Bible, the statistical possibility of those things happening without being accurately inspired by God is an impossibility. Just take 11 of the miracles of Jesus Christ. Of those 11 that were done by Jesus Christ, things that he could not control. He could not control the, uh, how much money they were going to pay Judas. He did not control, so to speak, from a human point of view, what the uh, soldiers would do in, in gambling for his clothes. He could not control them not breaking his legs or breaking his legs. He could not control what type of tomb he was going to be buried in. He had no control over being, being put on the cross between two thieves. But all these things were predicted. Okay, And from a man's point of view, he couldn't control them. You take 11 of those things and you say, how is it? And, and you reach down and on your very first try, you find that exact quarter hidden in that pile. That's the statistical probability of 11 of those, of those predictions coming to pass. It's impossible unless it was inspired by God Almighty. So you go and say the accuracy of the Bible. Now there's more to this. I have to stop. But there's more proofs that give substance to the idea of my putting my faith in the Bible as being inspired. It is the claims of the Bible, the correctness of the Bible, and we'll give you three more, three more facts, factual evidences next week when we pick up.